Welcome everyone to the Green to Gold podcast that informs our listeners on how green building upgrades and building decarbonization can be profitable for property owners. I'm your host, Robert Pollitzer, and each week we embark on a journey to explore innovative solutions and strategies that aim to reduce operating costs and carbon emissions while increasing the building's net operating income and value. Today, I want to welcome Stuart Kaplow, an environmental and sustainability attorney based in Maryland. Mr. Kaplow represents a broad breadth of, of business interests across the country and increasingly internationally in a, a, a varied real estate and environmental law practice with focused experience in green building and sustainability. Mr. Stuart Kaplow, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. I look forward to the conversation. So um, why don't we start with you telling our audience about your very, uh, very long and pioneering involvement with green building law. Thank you. Thank you. A great place to start. Um, it uh, always gives me a pleasure when I talk to folks to uh, remember how long I've been doing this. Um, I actually started off as a uh, as a somewhat traditional real estate law practitioner, worked for large law firms, um, and it actually was um, 20 years ago, next month, um, that I began um, a full-time green building practice. Um, and what I would say is for those of you who uh, want to be dated a little bit, there actually was an article in the American Bar Association Journal in June of uh, 2025 that speculated that I was the first full-time green building attorney in the country and questioned whether I was either a visionary and would be wildly successful at this endeavor or whether I'd be doing something else in a decade. Um, I, I can report that two decades later, I'm still doing this um, and it's been a great run. I'm very lucky that many of those folks that actually I represented in the real estate development practice in really the first 20 years of my practice, um, our clients today. Um, so 38 years into a practice, uh, we full-time have this wonderful opportunity um, to really do much of what you described at the outset of this podcast, um, Robert, is talk about um, ways to both make the built environment more efficient, but also better for the planet at the same time, better for my clients and really better for all of us. So it, it, it's been a great run. Yeah. Um, I think we share that fundamental goal of, of uh, making green building upgrades and decarbonization a profitable venture for private property owners and investors. Because if we don't make it profitable, we're just not going to get the kind of buy-in that we need for large-scale attraction and transformation. Would you agree? 100% agree. Yes. And in fact, I mean, I, you know, I, I have a client who I, 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 I won't actually name, but the client who, those of you who want to do the research could easily figure out was actually the, uh, the NIOP um, real estate developer of the year, um, a year ago. So nationally recognized, um, was actually my first large scale commercial green building client, um, nearly 20 years ago. Um, today, um, this company has more than 150 LEED certified buildings, nearly all LEED gold and LEED platinum. Um, but he bills himself as a real estate developer, not necessarily as a green real estate developer. And what, as he began his speech at the NIOP National Convention a year, a little over a year ago, 
He began by explaining from the outset that his the lead buildings in his portfolio perform at more than a 9% ROI better than the non-lead buildings in his portfolio. That's nine, better than 9%. Many of them perform significantly better than that. That really is, 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 is a mean. Um, but that goes to the point you were just talking about, Robert, that this needs to make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and there's someone who is a somewhat traditional suburban real estate, you know, uh, entrepreneurial developer, um, builds to hold, um, has a fairly large multi-billion dollar owned by one individual portfolio um, that has, again, significantly more than 150 um, lead buildings and many in progress. Um, and today is actually delivering um, more than one um, building a month. Um, and the new products are almost all lead gold. Um, they're all what I would characterize as suburban office buildings, probably ranging from 150 to, to 600,000 square feet. Um, most skewing a little on the larger, on the, toward that larger side. Um, and it makes good economic sense or he wouldn't be doing it. He personally, the principal of the company is a very conservative. While I often tell my clients, we don't do politics. Um, he's a very conservative Republican in, in, in nearly all ways of his life. Um, but he's about as environmental a guy as you can get when it comes to real estate. And he does it because, again, it makes sense for the planet. It makes sense for his tenant customers. It makes sense for his business and makes sense for his family. So he'll continue building green buildings. That is such an important case study. And I would I would absolutely welcome an introduction to him so I can interview him. Sure. Because frankly, you know, that's what we need more and more of. We need, frankly, people with very conservative viewpoints, you know, conservative, you know, real estate developers and owners who are embracing green as, you know, again, green to gold. Not, you know, and and that that it's a it's a um smarter business strategy, pure and simple. So now you're in the state of Maryland and uh, Maryland uh, somewhat recently passed the Maryland Climate Solutions Now Act. And I know that you're kind of, you're in the weeds with a number of your clients, you know, dealing with this law. And um, I want you, I want to hear from you how effective you believe the law is in achieving the stated goals of the law. Well, yes. I mean, uh, you are correct. And what I would say um, for those um, listening not based in Maryland, um, Maryland enacted a law in 2022, as you correctly said, and referred to it locally as the Climate Solutions Now Act of 2022. It is a building um, energy performance standard, a BEPS, um, somewhat similar, though they all have the little, their little variations um, to um, New York City's um, Local Law 97, um, similar to um, a series of the enactments in Vancouver. Um, we've also seen um, a, a very similar enactment both in, in Denver and in Colorado. So these building energy performance standards um, have really two sets of goals. And again, you need to be very careful with depending where you are in the country to look at the specific law that may or may not impact your real estate. But the two principal goals are first to measure 
greenhouse gas emissions. You know, that whole idea that, you know, you got to sort of measure it first. You need to understand the elements. I mean, it's not so easy uh, necessarily to, to come to an agreement how to measure. But first, you measure greenhouse gas reductions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And then second, you reduce them. And many of these laws have different schedules. Maryland is, many people believe, among the most aggressive in the country and, and in many regards um, requires all commercial building, which is broadly defined, um, very few exceptions, um, includes multifamily residential, includes industrial, uh, all, nearly all commercial building in the state of Maryland will have to be net zero by... January 1, 2040, um, which again is a pretty aggressive standard. There are some interim benchmarks and some other requirements. Um, look, I, you know, I, I, again, as someone who represents the industry as well as someone who, who, who believes um, that we all need to do better for the planet, I personally am not a fan. It, it, let me back up. I think that the statute, the law that we just talked about enacted in Maryland is a relatively good statute. Of course, if you let me personally design your 90-page bill and write every word, uh, I'll write something different than anyone else would come up with. But it's not bad. It, it probably is even good. However, the regulations that have been proposed and are not yet final in Maryland, despite the fact that we are required to begin benchmarking January 1 of 2024, a date that just passed, uh, you know, some some 40 some days ago. Um, the regulations don't carry with it the same spirit and the same balance that's in these laws. That is, when we're going to do something, this, this big, hairy, audacious goal of decarbonizing or reducing greenhouse gases, you really need to be cautious in how you do it. You need to make certain that you're not, you know, in all candor, destroying your economy to get there. Um, and I think some of what's been done in the proposed Maryland regulations um, go too far and don't recognize um, one of the realities. And let me just give you one example, because it really is one that carries across the country. One of the great examples is in the United States, we have a merchant class. We have many people that develop otherwise own, otherwise operate commercial real estate. They don't necessarily occupy all of their commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. We know in Maryland, according to the Census Bureau data, that over 90% of businesses are in a rented or leased space. That is, they don't own their building, they lease it. So in Maryland, our BEPS law burdens the owners of properties. It says the owner of the property must measure. The owner of the property must reduce his greenhouse gases. It in no way regulates or controls the tenants that are in the space. Well, because the law was drafted so, so recently in 2022, going into effect in 2024, many commercial leases that were already in effect in 2022 remain in effect. So if you sign a five-year lease with a couple five-year renewals, that lease didn't anticipate that the building owner needed to be able to get this information from the tenant, that the tenant needed to cooperate in reducing the energy use in the building. So if I get to choose sort of the number one flaw in the Maryland regulations as proposed, it's not accepting that reality. But again, that's not necessarily a knock on the concept of reducing greenhouse gases. It simply demonstrates some of this stuff is hard, more maybe more accurately. Some of this stuff requires some careful forethought and to be blunt, it requires some lead time because real estate is not a quickly, it's not like making widgets. The process of planning, 
purchasing, developing, building, leasing, financing, commercial real estate is a multi-year process. And making any of these changes needs to be able to build into that type of calendar. So again, that issue of the relationship of the tenant and the landlord, the lease document between them, you really need to look at a lot of those type issues. And there are others, but that's, I think, a great example of a BEP statute, you know, again, whether we're looking at, you know, local law 97, the Building Solutions Act of 2022, the Vancouver Act, they all need to take that into account. Yeah, that's that's great point. I mean, you've got the whole huge factor of triple net leases, right? you know, in especially in in malls, shopping centers. It's very it's almost almost a given that the tenant is going to have sole responsibility for all your utilities. Um and so that split incentive right there is a huge factor. Another thing that we're finding in, in New York City in particular with Local Law 97 is when you work with condos and co-ops, as they say in Yiddish, oi, I mean, you know, what a mess. Uh, and how, and, and yet there's there's huge numbers of, of units in New York that are co-ops and condos. And frankly, how those buildings are ever going to fully comply with Local Law 97 is... Um, it's really questionable, uh, especially condos when every single condo owner is the king in their small castle within this larger building. I, I, I could not agree more. What I would say to you, if you know, I, I chose to, 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 to look at the leasing issue and the commercial as an example of one of the issues of implementing these BEPS laws. But you are equally correct. Another of the huge issues is how do you deal with residential? And what I would say to you is the... You know, it's in different places in the country, different building types are popular. In Maryland, we don't have a lot of co-ops, but we have a lot of condominiums. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the issue of when you have condo owners and multi-story buildings and, and equally, I would say, if not even of greater concern than me personally, is low income housing. Mm -hmm. What do we do with, you know... You can tell me that you're a 70-year-old retired person living in a condo and there's no way you can afford the $90,000 unit, a unit retrofit to go from gas to electric and do all that kind of stuff. And so maybe that's got to be financed. Maybe the government needs to work on, on, on some way to help that. But the, in some weird way, I see that as solvable. What I don't see an easy solution to without direct aid from government is what we do if we're equally going to require that low-income housing come along. Privately owned low-income housing where there just isn't the money in the property in the deal, those tenants already can't make their monthly rental payment. How are we going to get those buildings retrofitted? You know, whether we're going with a pure electrification or whether we're simply going to reduce greenhouse gas through, through other upgrades, that's going to be a heavy lift for government to have to participate in this, or we're going to leave a large segment of the residential population behind. So that's essentially, essentially what government needs on a, on a state, on a federal, a local, state, and federal level is to be using AI on a machine learning basis to be to be analyzing all of these issues that are coming up, right? To be coming up with evolved strategies. This has to evolve. It's not a one. It's not like, you know, we've formed these laws and we've got it licked. We're not, it's not even close to being the, the, the reality that we're dealing with. No, no, I, 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 I could not agree with you more. This is an incredibly complex problem. You know, I often joke with people that, you know, the, that as a, as a nation, as a country, when we found problems that we think of as insurmountable, we declare war on them. 
you know, the great example of, you know, sort of the war on drugs. Um, and we can all speculate, you know, personally how we think that went. Right. But, you know, are we going to now have a war on greenhouse gases or a war on climate change? You know, I, I, I don't think that's the smart way to do it. And I think your observation that whether it's an, an, an AI issue, whether we need to enable the marketplace um, to be creative and do some things that are a little out of the box, while the government then may have to step in and support those pe mm -hmm. pieces of the economy that can't do it. You know, one of the most exciting things that we've seen evolve from this, and it's almost counterintuitive, um, but we have tenants who are charging their building owner landlords for greenhouse gas data and requiring indemnification from them. That is, we have some large national tenants that have first floor retail spaces and the like. Um, one of them is a large drug chain. And they're telling their landlords who need this greenhouse gas data to report to the government, yeah, we'll give it to you, but you're going to have to reimburse us for it. That is, they don't pay their own electric bills. They have third-party providers who pay their bills all across the country. Those companies are now going to charge them money to aggregate this data, to break it out by property, to report it to the landlord. So they both need to be reimbursed for their costs of providing the information to the landlord. Mm. They also want to be indemnified in case the data is wrong or somehow is calculated differently from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In Maryland, we have our own definition of a unique definition of greenhouse gas emissions, which is different than any place else in the country or the world. So if you're a national company and you're calculating both for local law 97 and for Maryland's Climate Solutions Act, you've got to calculate it differently, Yeah, um, which creates issues. So again, we're seeing tenants looking at this as a potential profit center and a way that they can actually then make a profit by selling this data to their landlords all across the country. Um, sort of a crazy little model that's evolving. Um, but again, I, I, I think we'll see more. This is a whole new regular government never regulated greenhouse gases before. This is all new. And I think we're going to see a lot of people um, find ways to, to facilitate this happening, um, including the data that's involved is so valuable that I think we're going to see it commoditized. Yeah. So we've been discussing local laws like New York City Local Law 97. As you know, there's the Bardo Law in Boston, uh, Chicago, LA, more and more cities are enacting local laws and, and low carbon mandates. Then you've got state states coming online, especially the state of Maryland. And then on the federal level, the big sort of elephant in the room, which we're not exactly sure where it's at, is the proposed SEC, Securities right. Exchange Commission, ESG mandate where publicly traded companies would have to start reporting on their carbon emissions as part of their annual ESG reporting. So um, give us, how do you believe that, um, this is a very controversial um, mandate, very controversial, it's a major backlash. And, and, and so why do you believe there's so much controversy around this proposed mandate? And how effective do you believe it will be in getting large publicly traded companies to begin to decarbonize their buildings? Um, let me be candid. That's a tough question. Um, let me answer it this way. Um, I certainly don't, well, I do actually have a magic eight ball on my desk that I do consult sometimes when I'm not quite sure where things are going. Um, and this is maybe one of those magic eight ball moments. Um, you know, it is, it is unclear where the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to go um, with its regulation that now is 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 literally um, 
13 months from when it was originally proposed. Right. The controversy in that regulation was it required the reporting, as you just said, um, of greenhouse gas emissions, but it required the recording reporting of scope one, two, and three. So scope one being those that you basically the greenhouse gases from what you produce on site. If you have a, a furnace and you and you burn oil, those are your great scope one. Scope two, those basically that you get from a third party public utility when you buy electricity from Con Ed or from somebody. Those are your scope two. And the scope three are those that are up or downstream in your supply chain. So the people that you buy materials or, 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 or widgets from using your process, then sell to somebody and they then use the product downstream, both up and downstream have to be calculated to get your scope three. I suspect that many, if not most people could, and while they might complain, they could easily report scope one and two. Mm -hmm. It's scope three that is controversial. Mm -hmm. And it's controversial because it is not something that has been that there's accepted science on. The math is even a little fuzzy. We've done a bunch of preliminary work for folks in this space. And we're doing that because California has a similar scope three requirement for a very limited number of companies. But what happens is then the SEC is not just regulating public companies anymore, but the SEC is regulating a public company, but it's also re then regulating all the suppliers to that public company, no matter how big or small they are, and then the end users of those public companies. So there's been a great deal of speculation under California's law that requires scope three emissions that Google is then required to what? Track for all of its customers all across the globe? Mm -hmm. Well, we've done some of this work for some uh, some people in the food industry, um, some other industries, um, sports apparel. And what we ended up with for one of those clients that, that I was looking at the spreadsheet last week is if you take all those scope three up and down the supply chain, we ended up with 22,000 columns that had to be tracked. Mm. It's just not reasonable that my client could, that we're going to get good data, verifiable data, 22,000 people up and down the supply chain. Um, and, and that's not even accounting for someone doing necessarily selling to the public. So the difficulty is scope three emissions. And at this point, we don't have a reliable, there's certainly no widely accepted way to do it. Um, again, we've, We've done pilot projects now. I think we have nine current pilots. I think we started another six um, that we did for clients, did some work on, and they determined not to go forward on until they saw where the regulations come down. Um, I think the issue is scope three emissions are speculative, is how I would term it at this point. And until we find a way to get our arm around it, it's not reasonable that many businesses, and again, it's not just the public traded companies, but if you sell paper, you sell legal services to one of those companies. You've now got to do this similar or substantially the same reporting. And you end up with so many inputs um, that it becomes very, very difficult to track them. And then to what end? So once we're you, you got all that data, then what are you going to do with all that stuff? Right, right. So, so I, you know, conceptually, the way I pretty much summarize the essence of where all this reporting is at is that and, and these carbon-related uh, laws is simply that, you know, we've been, we, especially building owners, have been using the atmosphere as a free sewer. I mean, and if you're, if you're a, a subdivision developer, as a, you know, I'm a, I'm a developer, and if you're developing 
a, a new subdivision, you have to pay to treat the effluent that, that's coming off that site. You can't just dump effluent anymore untreated into local water bodies, but we've been using this the atmosphere as a free sewer. But the, but the point is, especially with the social cost of carbon growing, we know it's not free. We know there's a real cost to we taxpayers. So it's, I think, uh, the essence of this problem is the intersection of the perception on the part of owners of an unfunded mandate, on the one hand, with the, the common good, the social good, of holding property owners in particular responsible for the emissions into this atmosphere. So to, so to remo removing the whole notion of a free sewer, if you will, a free atmosphere to be dumping into. That's how, how I see this kind of collision course. You know, it's very interesting. I, you know, we have different backgrounds, but what I would say to you is yes. Um, I would not characterize it quite that way. But I agree with you 99.86% of the way. I would characterize it, again, I get to put my, my lawyer hat on based here in Maryland, um, as environmental externalities. That is, as you say, we've gotten the free use, building owners and many have gotten the free use um, of the environment. And that's what we need to sort of wrap our arms around if we're going to be able to make any meaningful efforts towards repairing the planet. Yeah. Um so again, I, I yes, I think you're correct. Um, again, my I, I, I you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with suggesting the fact that I might use some different words than you. Um, but I think the your point is dead on correct about what we need to do if if we accept the fact that I, and I don't doubt that that the vast majority of people do believe that we need to make meaningful steps towards towards repairing the planet. Yeah. So. Stuart, how can folks get in touch with you to engage you with um, all of your brilliant work you do to help them out? With well, I appreciate the kind word. What I'd say is if you actually Google my name, if you actually Google Stuart Kaplow, S-T-U-A-R-T-K-A-P-L-O-W, we are very fortunate that we have a fun website, but we also publish two different blogs. We publish a blog called the Green Building Law Update. We also publish something called ESG Legal Solutions. Um, but if you Google my name, um, you'll find those. Um, I, I would encourage those who are interested, look at our blogs. Um, we try to make them both cutting edge in terms of discussing um, the current topics of the day, but also to be thought provoking and sort of give people ideas. Not every blog, not every idea and every post is going to make sense for everybody, I assure you. Mm -hmm. um, but what I do, what I will commit to you is that if you if you read through them and they generally are, are 600, between 600 and 650 words a post, so there's nothing longer crazy there. Um, you will um, potentially um, be enlightened, get a little bit of information, get a little bit of fun information um, about this. Um, because as Robert said, this really is a somewhat daunting topic. I mean, there, there, this is this is this is hard stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I would leave you with this thought that I, you know, the 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 analogy I give my clients very often is. You know, this is not like simple arithmetic. This is not one plus one equals two. Mm -hmm. This is more like trigonometry, but more importantly, it really is like one plus one equals 11. And people who already appreciate that one and one can equal 11 
got it. And you may not need me. You may not need to call Robert, but I suspect most of us need to collaborate and, 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 and work with folks who understand this stuff, because I, I don't, I don't think that we're at a point where there's any meaningful debate anymore. We, we need to make, we need to make real steps to repair the, repair the planet. Um, and real estate is a key opportunity for doing that where we can both repair the planet, but building owners can, can see it as a business opportunity, as can the consultants and those that work with building hours. It's opportunity for all of us. So thank you. Great stuff. Great stuff, Stuart. So um, that concludes another inspiring episode of our Green to Gold podcast. We hope you enjoyed the deep dive into how building decarbonization mandates can be turned into profitable value-add opportunities. Want a, a huge thank you to our incredible guest, Stuart Kaplow, for sharing uh, your expertise and shedding light on how to make building decarbonization profitable as per our mission. And we want to thank our listeners. Please subscribe to our Green to Gold podcast and leave a review. And thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Like, subscribe, and share. 